passage I want to key in here this morning is this. Uh, it's found in your bulletins if you don't have your Bibles with you, but it's found from Hebrews or, or Daniel chapter 10. And then of course, of course, of course, we've got to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. It would not be a sermon unless Ephesians got in there, but just as a background thing, we'll deal with Daniel chapter 10. And I'll read verses 12 and 13. Daniel's been praying for a couple of weeks and there's no answer to prayer. Sometimes you pray and there's no answer. We've always assumed that it must be either God's will or our will or some lack of faith, but the Bible has a different picture. He said there's this this sinister menacing angel got in the way. (laughs) Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he continued, the angel was saying to Daniel, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Since the first day. I got got dispatched immediately, the angel is saying, but... uh, I got detained. He says this in verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom, some kind of high-powered angel figure. Go ahead and let this freak you out if you've never heard it before. It's okay. Uh, but this prince of the Persian kingdom, this angel, this, this dark angel over the Persian kingdom, resisted me 21 days. I got in this fight. I'm reading the Bible here, not Frank Peretti. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So Michael the archangel comes and frees him up. I mean, he can't do it on his own, so God sends another helper to get him out of this mess. And now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. Look down at verse 20. So the angel said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Man, turning into a gang fight here. But first I will tell you what's written in the book of, uh, of truth. The idea here is this, simply this, that behind the scenes of Daniel's prayer, behind the scenes of his be- not receiving an answer to prayer was a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. Some angels started brawling, and how his message got answered, when it got answered, had something to do with the brawl that was going on. And then, of course, we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And all I want to do this morning, folks, is set the stage for this series by praying that God will open up our eyes to the reality of spiritual warfare. Because most of us in this culture, myself included, have been blinded to this reality. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the the devil's schemes. For our struggle, the Greek word there is the word to wrestle. It means our close physical contact. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You always thought that, didn't you? You thought it was against your, your, uh, your wife or your husband or your uh, boss or your cancer or whatever. No, it's not primarily against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Father, I pray that you would this morning open up our eyes to see the reality of this warfare that we are a part of. And Lord, in see, helping us see this reality, Lord, give us the strength, the courage to trust in you to fight the battle, to not leave the ring, but to stay in the ring, however wounded we may become, and have the confidence, Lord, that in Jesus' name, there's a, war, uh, there, there's a warring faction of angels around us on your side, and that we are protected, and that we have the power and the might to do what you've called us to do, Lord God. Open up our eyes that we may see. Let it be done in Jesus' name this morning. The question I want to ask this morning, really quickly, is this. Why do we... American, Western Christians not see this more clearly, more often, or more profoundly? It's a question I want to ask. To get at it, I I want to 
share with you an experience I have as a, had a little as a little boy. And that was my inability to go to the bathroom on public toilets. I had a profound amount of trouble going number two, we used to call it in my house, uh, having bowel movements uh, at, uh, in, in public places, uh, I, uh, in public toilets. Uh, and um, <laughs> well, there's a shrub, why am I afraid of going? But see, I, I would go up to these bathrooms and, and uh, uh, I could maybe have to go real, real bad. I mean, I was having trouble walking, you know, and, and, and I'd look in the toilet and, and I was looking for germs. Uh, and I thought there, see, I really thought that if I sat on some kind of public toilet, something was going to jump up out of the water and bite my butt. I, I just was sure of it. And it was like, not a good thing. And I'd look down there, where are those things? Mom said they're all around here. They're on the toilet seat, but I can't see them. But I believed her. I didn't want to get my butt bit, so I, I stayed away. And, and sometimes it caused, it was very awkward, very painful. One time in a recess, I was out leaning against the wall, kind of like this, in my old Catholic school, and someone came up behind me and pushed me by surprise. And I was not pleasant to be around the rest of the day. But see, I was learning something there that all of us learn healthily or unhealthily uh, at that age, and, and that is that the world is full of germs. It's germs everywhere! There's germs everywhere. And you learn about it as a little kid. You learn to see the world in terms of, if you will, germ warfare. There's germs all over the place. They're going to get you. And you learn to be afraid of that. Or at least to be cautious about it. Hopefully you don't get, you know, afraid of them. But you learn to be cautious about it. And that affects our behavior. Now, we don't see germs physically. We, don't, we can't see germs with the naked eye. But people tell us that they're out there. And people in developed countries learn how to operate such that they take into consideration the reality of germs. We don't usually brush our teeth with somebody else's, some stranger's toothbrush. And we don't chew gum that we find on the bottom of our, our seats there. You know, check on the, I'm sure there's some gum under there. You probably don't want to eat that. But if you didn't know about germs, you might. Kids do it all the time. Kids eat everything. And we say, no, 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 there's germs there. And we try to teach them that there's these little organisms that can get inside of you and get you very, very sick. In the Middle Ages... In fact, one of the reasons why, why people today tend to live uh, about 30 years longer than they did at the beginning of this, uh, of this century is because we've learned a lot about germs. We quit spreading diseases and sicknesses and stuff around, so people end up living longer. It affects our behavior. We wash before we eat. Now, we don't see what we're washing off usually, but we just, well, hopefully you wash before you eat, but there's, there's germs on your hands. And after you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands. We teach our kids how to do that. Part of the spectacles that we wear as we look at the world is this knowledge of germs. And germs are everywhere, and so hopefully you don't get too paranoid about them, but, but uh, you want to take them into consideration. You go to other parts of the world, and they don't have that. You go back a couple centuries, and they didn't have that. The bubonic plague was spread in, 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 the, uh, in, in the 13th century, 14th century, because what happened is that this virus would hit people. This virus would hit people, and uh, they'd run to the next village... And tell the people that the judgment of God was coming. Of course, the judgment of God would come. Because they didn't know that you were actually carrying the germ to the next village. That's how it spread all over Europe. A third of the population was killed in Europe in, in a three-year period of time. We quarantine people that have those kind of viruses. We know about the reality of germs and that they're out to get you, so we know how to protect ourselves. First world countries, primitive tribes and stuff don't know about that. And so they, you go to Haiti and you'll find them uh, selling food right next to a sewage thing. No, no, they, don't, they don't think in those terms. 
And you can try to explain to them that there's these little organisms that you can't see that you're going to get infected with, and they'll go, yeah, right, yeah, I'm sure. See, they, they just don't see the world in those terms, but we do. On the other hand, there's a whole lot that other people outside of this Western culture see about the world that we don't see. The reality of the scientific lenses, as it were, that we see the world in terms of, that allows us to see the reality of physical germs, prevents us from seeing other things, such as the reality of spiritual agents and the influence that they have in the world. You go outside of our little Western culture the last couple of hundred years, and what you find is, it's a, as a matter of common knowledge, as a matter of common sense, it's as much a part of their way of seeing the world as our way of seeing the world includes germs. They believe in the reality of spiritual beings, good and evil. I spent the summer, I'm working on a book called Satan and the Problem of Evil, and I spent the summer, or part of the summer, researching how other tribes, other non-Christian uh, African tribes and whatnot, understand spiritual forces. And what amazed me, it blew me away, is how sophisticated by our standards, how developed their understanding of the spiritual world was. Many of them had an understanding of a supreme cosmic evil being that fought against the highest God, who had underneath him all sorts of, of, of armies of evil beings that influenced the world and brought about sickness and death and disease and temptation and whatnot, and the Gospels never reached them. It's a part of the average person's common sense that human beings are not the highest level of intelligence on the earth. We're not the only intelligent beings in the earth. The physical world isn't the only reality there is. There's other dimensions. In fact, the physical reality of the world for most of these tribes, like the Hivero and the Shuar, that's not even the primary reality. But that we are part of a, we are part of a much broader, much bigger, much larger cosmic society. Only part of it is physical. The Bible shares that worldview. That the cosmos is inhabited by beings some of whom are physical, most of whom are not. And throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you find the working assumption that this world is caught in the crossfire of a cosmic battle that apparently was going on before the world began and will be culminated with the victory of God when the world ends. The Bible shares with these other cultures this assumption that there exist spiritual beings, some of them good, some of them evil, who war with each other and they also war against us. And they share with the Bible the assumption that what goes on in the spiritual realm, what goes on behind the scenes, impacts our behavior for better or for worse. We don't see it because we've got lenses that prevent us from seeing it, but other cultures see it. They take it as common knowledge and it's very much shared in the Bible. You can't really understand what Jesus' ministry was all about. You can't understand what his ministry was all about until you understand it against the backdrop of this warfare worldview. The understanding that there are, there's battles going on in spiritual places. Jesus, over and over again, confronted spiritual powers. In people's lives, he cast out, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, he cast out demons of muteness and demons of deafness and sickness and disease. He saw crippledness as being a bondage of Satan in Luke chapter 13. He did not believe that we should, in the face of evil, just resign and just say, oh, help us to accept it. He, he believed that we should fight it. He believed in the reality of spiritual warfare. Paul also talks about principalities and powers. And as we read here in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he understands the Christian life to be summed up in this. Struggle against the principalities and powers. And, go, and be involved in warfare against spiritual beings in high places. Dress up in the armor of God and the full armor of his might. That's what life is about. But we don't see it. We don't see it. We are, for the last several hundred years at least, blinded to that reality. 
We may be thinking, maybe you're sitting here listening to this and you think it sounds like some kind of science fiction, some kind of, it's flakiness, it's, it, it's wackoness, it's craziness. Or you're afraid that we're going to get off balance and start rolling on the floor and foaming at the mouth or something. I understand where you're coming from. I've been there. But on the other hand, what's important is that the blinders to our eyes get lifted. Let me give you an example of how we can be blinded to the reality of spiritual warfare, what's going on around us, and why we need to be aware of this. Several, or a number of years ago, actually, I was an uh, interim pastor in a little church in, in a rural America. I don't want to give any more details than that. A little congregation, a farm congregation of about 45 people. We had a revival while I was there. It got up to about 55 people. The greatest revival they've had in a century. And, but in this little church, there was this young woman who was severely disturbed. I met her the second week I was down there. She showed up on my doorstep, zipped up in a coat, locked up on the inside. It was pouring rain. She wouldn't come in. She wouldn't talk to me. She sat there. I finally went to bed. The next morning, she was still there. A very disturbed young woman. In the course of about nine months that I was down in this little rural community, I got to know this woman and got to dialogue with her about some of her struggles, some of the abuse she went through, some of the problems that she had. And see, I was in graduate school, or right out of graduate school, and so I had in my little bag of educational tricks a lot of techniques, you see, for helping people. And I want to say right here, I thank God for people who know the tool of, of counseling and psychology and therapy because it's a marvelous tool when used in the hands of a godly person. I affirm that. But I also affirm that we are not just psychological creatures, we are spiritual creatures. And sometimes on top of the psychological and emotional struggles we have, there's a spiritual dimension that you just can't get at by talking. But see, I didn't know that. I did not know that. I theoretically believed in the reality of spiritual beings. I was a Bible-believing Christian. I, I, I was saved. I was even being used of the Lord to do some, some pretty good ministry. But my belief in spiritual beings was sort of theoretical. I believed in spiritual beings the way people in Haiti believe in germs. They hear about it. They know about it. Maybe they believe it. But you know what? It doesn't impact their behavior. It's not concrete. It's not real to them. That's what beliefs in spiritual beings, demons, and whatnot was to me. So I never began to even think the possibility that this gal was being hassled by spiritual beings. I did find it interesting that throughout the nine years I was there, whenever I'd try to bring up the Lord, she got very agitated. I noticed that. Sometimes if I began to press the subject, she'd even have this kind of a growl. Like, and I, I thought maybe that had something to do with some past abuse or whatever, and it might have. But I found that interesting. At the end of nine months of making a little bit of progress in this, in this young woman's life, I was getting ready to leave because they had found a pastor. and I wanted to try to bring closure to this relationship. I wanted to really see where this young woman stood with the Lord because I'd never been able to talk with her about it. We were sitting in a Dairy Queen one of the last weeks I was down here at this uh, rural church. And I began to press the issue. What do you think about Jesus? And she would... And I'd say, come on, don't do that. You know, we stop that, please. I hate it when you growl. I'm trying to talk to you about the Lord. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. Do, well, don't do that. You know, come on, you, let me talk. And I kept on pressing it and pressing it and pressing it because I really wanted to break through. I think I was doing the right thing, but I was ignorant in doing it. And finally, at the point, this, this lady lost it. She just lost it. She started going, like, twitching, kind of like, like, you know, her head kind of weird, very erratic, doing this growly kind of thing. She stood up on the table and began to, like, like, scratch at the windows. This is in the middle of a Dairy Queen. People eating their ice cream cones are getting upset, like, will you please put a leash on her or something? And what made it really awkward was that I had a funeral to go to in about 15 minutes. And, like, the timing of this thing was really bad. So I had this funeral to go to, and she's not listening. It's like, oh, sit down! Now, I don't have time for you to be demonized. I got a funeral to go to, and we just stop it. But see, I didn't even think in those terms at all. I thought she's just very disturbed. But they had to call the police. 
Well, I went to the funeral. They got her and they brought her to, to her house. Actually, this had happened, something like this had happened uh, several years before because so, they knew what to do. They brought her to her house. I went to the funeral. In the middle of the funeral, I get this notice, uh, this, this emergency note. Please, as soon as the funeral's done, go to our house. And it was uh, the parents of this young lady. After the funeral, I went to this young lady's house. Her house was trash. She'd had this violent rage thing and had broken a lot of stuff and whatever. They had to lock her out of the house in the backyard. They had a farm there. And there's this barbed wire fence kind of where they used to keep the cattle and stuff. And she was in that barbed wire fence place. And I went back there and she said, don't you come in here. I want you to stay on the other side of that barbed wire or I'll kill myself. So I, I, I reached into my bag of educational Western tricks. And I'm still trying to talk her down, still trying to calm her or whatever. And I'm trying to just make some sense out of this. Occasionally she would talk intelligibly, but sometimes, most of the time, she would just kind of like get very agitated and do that growl thing. Occasionally she'd rub herself up against this barbed wire fence and there'd be blood there. I mean, she was scraping her arms all pieces, and I kept on going, stop that! You know, I didn't know what else to do. Finally, at one point, as I was trying to talk about how the Lord loves her or whatever, and she was getting very agitated, she picked up the barbed wire and wrapped it around her neck and tried to, go like, tried to like saw off her neck. And at that point, I jumped the fence, and I tackled her to the ground, and as I held her there and hollered for her parents to call the paramedics, be, it, it, a light went on, and the light was simply this. I recognized this sort of thing. I remember reading about it in the Gospels. This looks a whole lot like several accounts that Jesus dealt with. This young boy who kept on throwing himself in the fire, or the young boy who kept on wanting to drown himself, a suicidal kind of a spirit. And Jesus there did a deliverance thing, but I didn't know anything about that. They called the paramedics. They came. They put her up in a straitjacket and took her away and, and took her to a psych ward. And they asked that I never visit her again because they thought that maybe I had something to do with her disturbance now. Because I was a religious fanatic. The truth of the matter is, is I wasn't fanatical enough. Now, God will take care of that, but what I understand is that I dropped the ball big time because of the glasses I was wearing, the spectacles I was wearing. I could not see what was going on. I didn't take into consideration that there's an entire world going on behind the scenes that maybe has something to do with this young lady's disturbance. I didn't immediately wake up either. I, I went for a couple more years where I, I was now interested in this reality of the spiritual warfare. This got me interested. I attended seminars once in a while. More often than not, I walked out of them because I thought they were so flaky. I thought they were just weird. I thought only wacko, unbalanced people talk about demons and spiritual warfare and all this kind of stuff. I remember Open Door put on this conference uh, with Tom White, and I went there. It was a three-day conference. I lasted an hour and a half. I finally just got, came to the conclusion that these people were all stark mad, couldn't understand why a reputable church was putting on a silly, silly conference like that, and I walked out. This is like craziness. It wasn't too long after that that the Lord put me through a spiritual boot camp, and I don't want to go into the details of it here except to say this. The Lord just gave me a, 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 a real initiation, okay, uh, into the reality of this stuff. In a, in a, in a five-week period of time, or in a three-week period of time, I confronted five cases of demonization. Severe demonization, all unrelated to each other, all in circumstances that you wouldn't expect to find it. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a church Sunday school, in a Bethel classroom, in an university retreat. I mean, everywhere I turned, it was like, bam! And God was just initiating me big time into this thing. And here's what it did for me, and here's what I want to do for you. Here's what I want the Lord to do for all of us, and it's, it's just this. I want to pray that God will open up our eyes. I have no interest in getting weird about this, getting wacko about this, Fighting a demon behind every possible thing that goes wrong. We can't find a parking space. It must be a demon. I don't want to even talk about that stuff. But at the same time, there was a time in the Bible where Elijah was surrounded by a physical enemy and his servant was getting all freaked out. 
And so Elijah prayed, Father, open up my servant's eyes that he can see what's going on here. And the Bible says that that minute his eyes were opened and he saw all around him, like this great cloud of witnesses we refer to in Hebrews chapter 11. He saw all of God's angels in chariots with swords, flaming fire. And he realized that greater were they that are on our side than they that are, that are against us. And, he, and his confidence was risen because he saw reality. And my prayer this morning is that we could begin to get out of our naturalism, our Western naturalism, our Western scientific worldview, take the glasses off that we're wearing to begin to see the reality of what's going on around us. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but it's happened to me before where I, I'm wearing sunglasses outside and then I, I go inside and I forget I have the sunglasses on and I wonder why the, the, the house is so dark. And you wonder, like, you start turning on lights and then you realize you're wearing sunglasses. The problem's not with the house, the problem's with the glasses that you're wearing. But you forget that, so you confuse the lenses with the reality. And so it is with us. We are taught by our scientific worldview, by our materialistic worldview, by our naturalistic worldview, to not take seriously the spiritual world, to not take seriously what's going on behind the scenes, to not see what everyone else outside of our culture, including the Bible, sees, and that is that there's a spiritual war going on. I believe that the enemy has, has strategized to keep the Western church under a stronghold, under bondage, and in a weak Innocent position where it can't do anything by blinding us. If you take a bunch of warriors and you convince them that there is no war, you know what? You've done a pretty good job of nullifying them as being effective in the war. And for so long, we've been handicapped in, the, in, the, in this regard. And it's time, and what I see God doing in the church in the West today is just this. He's taking the blinders off of people. He's beginning to wake people up to the reality of what's going on. He's beginning to empower the church to get involved in the spiritual battle. He's beginning to pe get people to realize who they are in Christ Jesus, and it's making a difference. He's teaching us about germs, not physical germs, but spiritual germs, and what to do about it and how to fight it. That's a beautiful thing. As the church is beginning to wake up to this whole thing. Not every headache is demon-inspired, but some are. Not every sickness, not every disease, not every marriage conflict is demon-inspired, but many of them are. And Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Know about it. And knowing about it, come against it. Struggle against the principalities and powers. Not every church conflict, not every struggle you go through, not every temptation, not every sin is a direct result of some demon on your shoulder. But some of it is, some of it is directly involved, and all of it in one way or another goes back to the enemy of our souls, the enemy of this world. The world is under siege by forces that are hostile to us and hostile to the world. And what we got to know, and I want to close with this, in the beginning of this talk and in the end of this talk and through, in the middle of this talk, and we're going to be emphasizing this the next couple of weeks, is this. Now, I, I was afraid of germs when I was in first grade because I didn't understand them. I thought they were like little crabs or something that reach up and bite you. I didn't understand. What you don't understand, you fear. And a lot of Christians fear this topic, even right now. Maybe you're sitting there going, oh, jeez. I, I like this church up till now. You know, gosh, now they have to stop talking about this stuff. I'm afraid of that. I just don't want anything to do with that. But you know what? You're like a first grader who's afraid of the germs. Because, see, once you understand about germs, you just get out a bottle of Lysol and you spray the suckers. There's no more problem. Knowledge is power. And so it is in the spiritual realm. Lord, make this clear to us right now, God. Be moving right here, Lord. So we need to understand this. Jesus came into this world, the Bible says, and when he died on the cross, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that he destroyed the principalities and powers to such a degree that the Bible says he made a mockery of them. He made a laughingstock of them. The picture I get in my mind is like this giant bottle of Raid coming down, and all the cockroaches go, ah! And he sprays that, and he just destroys those things. And then what we got to know is this. He's given to the church the Lysol, okay? Uh, he's given to us the power. Amen? 
to rise up against the enemy. He's given us the power in him to vanquish the enemy. In fact, the Bible tells us this. If we know who we are in Christ, if we know what is real, if we just have the knowledge that God wants us to have, then we'll understand this. That really, we don't even have to fight a battle because the battles have already been fought. The battle was fought on Calvary. Our whole job is simply to take what Christ accomplished on Calvary and apply it to our marriages and apply it to our kids and apply it to our homes and apply it to our bodies and apply it to other unsaved people and begin to do what we saw put out here in this uh, play, to begin to invoke spiritual power against the powers of darkness that are real, that are there, that are trying to do us in, but to know that in Christ Jesus the victory is already ours. The least appropriate response, the least appropriate response in the light of all this is fear. That's the last thing that should ever occur to a Christian. The Bible says that he's not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind, praise God. He's not given to us a spirit of fear. Perfect love, the Bible says, casts out fear, but rather when we understand who the enemy is and when we look at, 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 at who, who our Savior is, it's like looking at a bunch of little, little tiny varmints when you've got a bunch of, you got a raid can here, and they've already been sprayed. They're gasping for air. All we've got to do is squish them. And so it is, praise God! With us. Here's the final word I want to say about it, and then I want to have a time where we, we, we celebrate. We've got to understand this, that for the Christian, it's not even a matter of getting the victory, really. It's a matter of knowing that you've got the victory. The way, when we sing about spiritual warfare, you guys, we're not just singing about spiritual warfare, we're doing spiritual warfare. And the way that we experience the victory is by proclaiming the fact that we already have the victory. Are you with me? The way we subjugate the enemy is by proclaiming the reality that the enemy is already subjugated. The way we go forward in war is by celebrating the fact that the war in principle is already over. And to know that the enemy has nothing on us, he can have nothing on us, neither death nor life nor anything else, can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And as the worship team comes out here, let me just say this in closing. This is my fourth closing, maybe it's my fifth. But it's this. I have this fuel here. You see, even the enemy, even when death, death reigns, death is still here, it doesn't reign, but, but death is still a part of the fallen world. And the enemy thinks that that's his victory. But you know what? When he goes after the believer and, and we die, he doesn't even realize that he's an idiot in this one. On spiritual matters, he's an idiot. But he, all he does is he gives us a promotion. <laughs> and, and, and what we need to know, and, and I guess here I'm bringing full circles, I talk about the wounded warrior of Nancy Nagley, is that, that, is that, all that happened to her was she got promoted. She went from being a wounded soldier to being a prize fighter. Last service, I, I, there's such a mixture of emotions that I have uh, on this. I, I, have, I, I miss her a lot, and, and I have sorrow about that. At the same time, I'm happy for her, and I want to, with all that energy that I have, just be in the face of the enemy. You think you got us on this one? You are very, very wrong. This is nothing more than something to celebrate, nothing more than to proclaim the fact that one of ours has graduated on high, that you are defeated, we are victorious, you've got nothing on us, and we're here to say so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.